The Funambulist Podcast by Léopold Lambert. Today, virilism, clandestinity, and other modes of being queer for French Muslims with Mohamed Amadeus Mack. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Mohamed Amadeus Mack, uh, who is uh, an assistant professor at Smith uh, in French studies and who, um, whose work particularly looks at the intersection of immigration and sexuality uh, in France. Uh, and uh, he is the author of a fantastic book called Sexagon, Muslims, French, France, and the Sexualization of National Cultures that came out in uh, January of 2017 uh, at uh, Fordham University Press. Uh, and uh, today we'll uh, have a conversation very much oriented uh, on um, Uh, on the content of this book. Uh, hello, Mohamed. Hello. Uh, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with me uh, uh, during your your stay in uh, in France. Sure. Uh, and um, and um, I'm very very happy that we are able to continue a sort of uh, a sort of series of podcasts of conversations about uh, some works that are being done about French politics, maybe from uh, American universities. And I'm thinking uh, more recently of uh, of uh, Crystal Fleming, a conversation with Crystal Fleming. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, this is great. <laughs> uh, and uh, as I usually ask my guest uh, to start a conversation, Uh, could you tell us a little bit what you're currently researching now that this book has been out? Okay. <laughs> All right. So um, I'm kind of going in a different direction, and I think sexuality is not going to be as central a focus. But um, what I'm interested in is actually um, dystopian visions of um, the future uh, in France, but also Europe, in which sort of demographic trends um, are exacerbated, and we have something like a Muslim or an Arab invasion. And so I'm looking at how this plays out in um, cultural documents. So like uh, Michel Houellebecq's Soumission is a starting point, but there's also, um, you know, other examples of like uh, reverse crusades or sort of, um, you know, stemming from the theory of the great replacement and Renaud Camus and stuff like that. Um, so I'm looking kind of at... Um, how uh, there is a kind of zeitgeist for these kinds of demographic dystopian predictions um, and how also it plays into um, current kind of right-wing xenophobic politics and how it, all of it also relates to concepts like le, le suicide français or um, a sort of disempowered um, European um, kind of a defeatist a defeatist mentality or a disempowered mentality that would enable unchecked immigration or sort of wolves in sheep's clothing kind of uh, rhetoric about refugees who are here, you know, under good pretenses but might become the next, you know, um, terrorist or rapist of the future. Um, so that's kind of the big premise. So I think the title that I'm going with for now, I don't know if I'll be able to keep it, it's called uh, Eurabia. Uh, visions of reverse crusades in European culture. Hmm. Um, so uh, I am still kind of at the initial stages. So I'm doing a lot of kind of preliminary work, just reading a lot of journalism and what's out there. But I have some ideas for chapters. So one chapter, I kind of want to start with the whole sort of, um, it's kind of an origin story, but about the Bataille de Poitiers, or some people call it the Bataille hmm. de Tours. And how it is taught in, um, I think I believe it's eighth grade. I think that seventh or eighth grade. Yeah, pretty young in, in any case. Yeah. yeah, that's something that there's a few dates that you remember as a kid, and uh, right. as a few events of battle, and that's one of them. That's one of them. Yeah. So there's a chapter where I'm just looking at school manuals, but I'm also looking at um, how. Uh, uh, history curriculum is politicized in journalism. Like sometimes, you know, when there's propositions of changing the program or the curriculum, it becomes an object of like 
uh, media controversy, right? So whether it's like les apports de la colonisation or how we're going to teach about slavery or something like that. And so on the one hand, I'm kind of happy to see that um, this is being taught because when I was, I went to a French school and I was in, for seventh and eighth grade, I was in um, a lycée français, uh, not the lycée years, but like we, our school was called the lycée français, but I had a French curriculum and we didn't study that, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, but on the other hand, what's interesting is that this lesson is taught Um, in the same sequence as the origins of slavery. And the origins of slavery are, the traite uh, is explained as being um, oriental in origin, or Arab in origin, right? So immediately you move from a narrative of, you know, Arabs as invaders and, you know, saving the Christian destiny of Europe and things like that, to one about um, the origins of slavery. And in that manual the uh, European slavery is not talked about. So you have to wait another year or two, I don't know, I haven't looked enough ahead, um, before you see the full scope of slavery and you realize that it's not just like an Arab phenomenon. So what I'm interested in is kind of like the impact of of studying this lesson in, you know, increasingly changing uh, French classrooms. And, you know, we always hear about how difficult it is to sort of teach things like Israel-Palestine in certain French classrooms. But I'm also interested in how this lesson is received. Mm -hmm. Because we do have some, I'm thinking of some um, like tidbits, um, some stories that I've heard of like French rappers, um, where for instance, they will, they remember how they were depicted in history books. Um, They remember being portrayed as the envahisseurs, you know, and how this was the first moment of like suspicion or feeling not French or also the first time where they, some of them became like de or like became like um, difficult students or started resisting their teachers or something like that. So I'm interested in just in that moment as kind of like a launching moment, but I'm also interested in how, for instance, you can trace the history of this lesson on Charles Martel and the Bataille de Poitiers where in the beginning he's seen more as a hero, but as you move on, I, f- I feel like the evolutions in the curriculum are more, um, they kind of reduce his impact. And they say that he was an important figure, but you know he was not really a hero. You know, there were all kinds of political intrigues at, this, at that time. There were alliances between you know, France and Islamic Spain on certain other questions, and you know, maybe this invasion wasn't really an invasion, it was just a raid, it was just a razia, and there were never really ambitions to settle there, you know. So there's a lot of kind of historical contestation that I'm interested in. But against the backdrop of all this, you have, you know, um, like Génération Identitaire and other, like, far-right websites who are reclaiming people like Charles Martel or the, the Knights Templar, um, and these kind of figures of heroic masculinity. And so I kind of want to analyze or write something about um, why we are, why these groups are choosing specifically very masculine warrior type religious figures as like defenders of Christian Europe. And one of my hypotheses is that it, it is that way because the sort of Muslim invader is portrayed as exclusively male and that this would be the appropriate figure to defend European culture against that type of invader. Um, so that's one chapter, and I'll just briefly describe like some other chapter ideas I had. Um, so there's another chapter that talks about um, French rap music, and I'm kind of envisioning it as like a like um, an antidote to the other chapters because. Um, in many ways, uh, French rappers have meditated a lot about what it means um, to have a, you know, a changing France. And what's interesting to me is that many people point to the neighborhoods where these rappers grew up as like les territoires perdus, um, or places where if you don't put a check on um, certain demographic trends, you will have a nightmare of communitarism and things like that. Um, but at the same time, I'm interested in the ways like they use this um, 
these demographic um, uh, phenomena, like the the fact that these neighborhoods are 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 changing and have become very diverse, and there's a kind of um, solidarity between um, people who have been lumped together who are non-white and who have done many, many interesting sort of like cultural experiments and mixtures like, you know, for instance, like Le Rayen Bay and like the meeting of, of uh, you know, the, um, the different parts of the French colonial empire in one place and what are the kind of the cultural, um, the uh, l'apport culturel, like the cultural advantages of this and, and kind of explaining that um, uh, people, uh, like these cultural actors and these rappers view... Um, what they're doing there as something which is actually culturally rich. So sort of what one part of society sees as like a demographic nightmare can be um, very um, culturally prolific for another part of the population. Um, and then I think the last uh, chapter that I'm working on is about the um, rhetoric of the French suicide or European suicide and sort of um, in what ways like certain parts of the European left or the kind of multicultural forces in Europe are viewed as kind of having a pathological tendency of um, subverting their own destiny or of having an almost sadomasochistic relationship to immigrant invaders or people of color and how they're enabling these demographic trends to continue. So I'm kind of interested, like one of one chapter of my current book is about psychoanalysis and its relationship to the immigration debate, but I'm kind of interested, and this might actually be connected to the work I do about sexuality, but just about how um, policies of acceptance and welcome have been pathologized as like S&M tendencies or sadomasochistic tendencies by people on the right um, in France, but also Europe. Mm-hmm. Well, so yeah, so that's a perfect segue. We're gonna we're gonna talk. We're gonna explore a little bit more your book in the in the next uh, thirty minutes or so. Okay. Uh, perhaps I should just add because I, I think you you've been enunciating a few um, a few of those uh, identity uh, concept, uh, mm-hmm. uh, which all in all are all pretty funny actually. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, as, uh, I mean, what what I what I'm what I mean to say is that I what I what I've been noticing with many uh, French uh, anti-racist and decolonial activists is their humor, humor, mm-hmm. and I think they're, they've been they've been quite fantastic at like taking a concept like the Great Replacement uh-huh. of like of like uh, the, the 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 white Christian uh, population of France being replaced by uh, by the the maybe Muslim and Arab uh, Arabs and Blacks. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've been saying, "Yeah, we're gonna great replace you," <laughs> and so it became a verb to great yeah. replace. And and I, I think I, I particularly enjoy this uh, this way of subversion of those of those uh, yeah. of those uh, ideological concept. But well, it's interesting too how people wear the costumes of the scarecrow mm. or the uh, l'épouvantail or something Boogie like Man, that. Yeah. yeah, the boogeyman, yeah. and and you know you can exploit um, stereotypes and fear-based images sometimes to your advantage, mm-hmm. and humor is one way to yeah. do that. Yeah, so sorry to interrupt you. No, no, yeah. no, absolutely not. Um, so uh, I suppose there's various ways to approach um, your work in, in this book, Sexagon, um, but perhaps before we, we, we even talk about um, uh, things like homonationalisms or... Mm-hmm. Well, I think I, I'd be, I'd be interested in talking about what you call yourself a vir- virilism. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the the and the the other ways of being uh, a queer person, yeah. uh, in particular in um, territories that you will describe for us, which are uh, uh, the the banlieue of uh, of France. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their population being uh, having a, a strong history uh, with uh, colonialism, and I think I, I heard you speak uh, uh, last week mm-hmm. about how you you sort of uh, started your book where Todd Shepard is finishing his uh, yeah. about uh, a book that's not been translated in English. Yet. Well, that's not been published in English yeah. yet, which is called uh, which will have a 
difficulty to be translated the title I suppose because in French yeah. it's mal decolonization mm -hmm. so it's both the evil and uh, male right <laughs> less, like la cité du mal kind of yeah, yeah. so uh, I think it has a different title in English but uh, it, but it's not published yet is it's it? not but I've, yeah. they, it has a page on Amazon oh, and it's something like uh, Arab men in France or something oh, it's, it's okay. a little bit simpler yeah, yeah. a little bit more simpler yeah. okay Um, so yeah, I mean, can you can you tell us a little bit about more about this notion of virilism in this uh, particular context? Yeah, so I think this is a very thorny concept that it's it's one that I handle with care um, because I think for a lot of people it has a bad connotation, and for me, it is not synonymous with machismo, and it's not synonymous with the male sex. Mm. So the kind of intervention or, or contribution um, that I want to bring forward in the book is to talk about non-gendered virility. So that requires a little bit of explanation. But I think what I had been observing is that, um, for instance, I look at two figures in order to develop this concept of non-gendered virility. And one of them is the uh, girl gang member or a member of une bande de filles, and also the Um, homosexual male who um, adopts uh, uh, sartorial style like clothing habits or body language or uh, facial um, kind of you know uh, curating one's um, you know appearance uh, with facial hair and so on earrings and so on that is most often compared with a kind of Um, banlieusard look or street style or to use a pe pejorative word like a hakai style or something like this and um, so I was I oftentimes these uh, figures are seen as internalizing um, sort of dominant macho laws and I think what I was trying to do is avoiding um, I was trying to avoid this kind of criminal sentence which is often placed on them which is that what they're doing is not queer it's not um, at all individualistic it's just about group mentalities it's just about um, blending in and hiding yourself and um, internalizing sort of patriarchal laws that uh, dominate in those areas and what I was interested in is kind of seeing actually giving them um, a chance to sort of um, teach us what is queer about what they're doing. So, you know, queer is another word that is uh, translated in many different ways. Um, I think what I do in my book is instead of giving one translation, I give just many words that, for me, evoke what it means, and I accept that it is an unstable word. So I think the... Uh, If queer means uh, transgressive or alternative or humoristic, not taking things uh, seriously, if it means being different, if it means, you know, um, not fitting in, um, I think in many ways these figures can be called queer. And they can be called queer, in my argument, against um, only when compared against uh, homonormativity. So I spend a lot of time explaining how sort of um, comportement or sort of habits or behaviors that might not be considered queer if you found them in like North Africa or in um, the countries of origin of these, uh, sorry, the countries of ancestry of these young people. Um, but in a context of immigration, they obtain a relative queerness. So you can imagine, for instance, um, you know, the uh, the rakaige, and already, like, when you say rakaige, people think that is a joke. You know, people don't accept that you can be both uh, rakaige, or what I translate as, like, homothug. You can't be a thug and a homosexual at the same time, that there's a fundamental incompatibility there. So, like, there's a book that I analyzed called uh, Omogito, where the first profile, like, it starts with a portrait of a um, self-assumed uh, Rakaige, whose fake name is Majid, 
who uh, he is uh, described as a walking contradiction. And he's described as someone who really needs to mature in terms of his sexuality and get who, his story straight. Yeah, get his story straight, right? <laughs> and uh, and what's funny is that this this guy Majid is very funny because he um, makes fun basically of all the commodification of hood guys mm-hmm. in gay culture. Uh, he uses it to his his advantage, even though he is in other ways victim of it. Um, but he brings humor to a situation, and the journalist is absolutely humorless in the face of that. So this so the, is the journalist being the author of the this author book, of yeah. the book, right? And journalist so, from Liberation. Right? Uh, well, he, he what I know is that he started at um, uh, I think. Uh, like a, a Burr interest radio station. Oh, okay. And then he, he, yeah, he moved through journalistic circles and then he had a position in the PS. Oh, yeah, so, okay. And also so in, in the, the Socialist Party. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. That, that, that's why it's quite interesting to see where this discourse comes from. Right. Basically, what we might want to call the liberal left or the right. center left or something like exactly, that. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so, sorry. So what I what find interesting is that um, against the forces of what I call homonormativity or just where um, sort of the cultural guardians of homosexual culture, the kind of norms that they enforce about the appropriate ways of being gay, that kind of figure is like an enfant terrible or a kind of anti-hero or a counter model to that. Um, but in many ways, um, I feel that uh, that kind of figure has a lot to um brings a kind of positive pressure on hormone normativity because it allows us to sort of get into very fruitful conversations about um, the closet and about uh, transparency and about imperatives of disclosing every bit of, of information and private information about ourselves, even while we're living in a kind of surveillance state and in a security state. So I think that... Um, What I'm interested in is kind of how these figures that are determined non-queer can queer our understandings of like homonormativity or mainstream gay gay culture. So in the Bande de Fille is similar. So in the Bande de Fille, um, you know, you have this documentary La Cité du Mal, which was on Arte, and in many ways, like Arte, Arte is kind of a double-edged sword because they have a lot of great documentaries about sexual difference, but also they have done a lot like the Journée de la Jupe and uh, La Cité du Mal um, are both from Arte and um, really all the kind of sexual demonization I'm talking about, you see a lot of it on, on that channel. But, um, you know, that documentary had a lot of problematic aspects, but I didn't want to talk about the sexual violence part of it, which is the most, you know, alarming part of the documentary. But the way that it talks about um, the figures of the bonhomme or the, the woman who has kind of stereotypically masculine qualities. And I wanted to talk about how um, virilism in that case, and when I say virilism here, I'm trying to change the meaning a little bit, so maybe my use of the word is not conventional, but talking about loudness or assertiveness or being boisterous or being kind of about potency, about, you know, a lot of the characters, uh, a lot of these figures talk about um, earning respect or se faire respecter. And um, I think in my argument, virilism is something that women use as a tool also. And it has nothing to do with uh, sexual orientation. Um, it has nothing to do with femininity. But um, it is instead what I see as a kind of tool or signifier of urban belonging rather than a gender expression necessarily. Um, so that's why I, I, I argue that you see virilism um, in all these different kinds of figures, whether gay or straight, whether man or woman, because it is emerging from you know a geographical and community context. And so I'm, I'm kind of trying to you know, divorce virility from the male body in that way. And what's interesting about that is um, there's a scholar named Jack Halberstam who 
explains how you can better understand virility and uh, what, well, she calls it female masculinity. When it, you can better understand masculinity when it leaves the male body. So when you find masculinity in other places, you can see it for what it is. And uh, you know that these are not essential relationships between sex and, you know, these values of virilism and so on. So that's kind of how I understand mm-hmm. work. Um, well, maybe to, to, to push even uh, to, to, to try to make to have you speak a little bit more about uh, this notion of clandestinity you, mm-hmm. were, you were briefly evoking and the sort of refusal of a somehow essentialistic uh, coming out, for mm-hmm. example, for yeah. uh, people that and we can obviously think of uh, the work that Joseph Massad has been has been doing ar- along those questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, maybe I should say you are you wrote recently an article for the Phenomenalist yes. on this on this uh, on this very concept of clandestinity. So mm-hmm. can, can you can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah. So maybe just... It like, will be in issue 13. Okay, great. September. Lucky number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. Um, so clandestinity is kind of, you know, as I was writing the book, I didn't realize what the recurrent motifs were until really the very end. And I think clandestinity is definitely one of them. So, you know, the usual context we're talking about clandestinity is when you're talking about, um, quote-unquote, illegal immigration and underground networks, and everything that is a little bit um, invisible also, or, or, you know, that has to happen in the shadows. And so um, what I was kind of arguing is that, um, you know, clandestinity also matters in kind of gender and sexuality studies, especially when we're talking about uh, sexual minorities who are also ethnic minorities. So you know, what I'm interested in, and I'm not saying this is super representative or that involves, um, you know, thousands and thousands of people, but what I find very interesting is that, um, you know, there is a segment of um, the population which I find in, you know, books like Franck Chaumont's book or there are, you know, there's people who frequent these uh, nights clubs, which are geared towards uh, ethnic sexual minorities. Uh, you know, to me, in my lived life, and this is maybe personal, but in my lived life, they were very evident, and I didn't feel that mm. these types of personalities are accurately f- reflected in cultural documents. But there, there is a whole section of the population that. Um, still participates in clandestine sexual networks, even though um, other ways of being are available. But, you know, these other ways of being uh, are available at a, at a cost often, you know, and it, it, it helps you get into conversations about how difficult it can be to come out for people who, you know, either come from, don't have a lot of uh, material foundations, like, you know, the high price of coming out and how coming out actually um, for certain for certain people uh, it requires great sacrifice and it is simply not um, possible when you consider the sacrifice in terms of losing a support network or um, you know the money that it, it requires to move to a gay sanctuary you know and to what what you know what job what type of job you need what kind of couple you can have if that's if Uh, if you do that. So there's a kind of class dimension, but there's also, I think, a more cultural dimension, which is that what I see, and, you know, this is debatable, of course, but what I see is that there's a lot of um, recoiling away from gayborhoods and gay sanctuaries uh, where sort of sexual ethnic minorities, uh, gay people of color, queer people of color, uh, feel a certain um, lack of welcome or uh, feel marginalized in neighborhoods and retreat into communitary spaces. And so from a mainstream point of view, you know, this retreat into communitarianism is seen as a disaster. But for a lot of these, um, you know, uh, queer people of color, it is about, uh, you know, um, finding people who are in similar situations. It could be about safe spaces. It could be about... Um, 
you know, finding a space where people are comfortable. And so in the book, I talk a lot about this. Definitely there is a communitarian tendency where, um, you know, you look at personal ads, for instance, and you find quite a bit of exclusive language where people are saying, I'm looking for someone who resembles me or I'm not looking for this. And it can be quite violent and exclusive language. But I think it also shows that um, the same phenomena that we see in mainstream society of people having a thirst for community as a kind of way to rebuild themselves or find uh, shelter in a way and to not always feel like they are a problem in society where, where people are looking for refuge in spaces like that. And I think the same thing happens in um, gay and queer communities, you know. So I think clandestinity, when I talk about that, I think there is a movement towards clandestinity, chosen and sometimes not chosen, that happens because of hyper-scrutiny of living in a society where there is a... Um, encouragement to always confess who you are, to be a transparent subject, to be also an ideal capitalist subject who participates in, you know, public economy and public society. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, queer people and sexual minorities um, do feel that, uh, you know, it is difficult to live in a surveillance state, especially as Arabs, because when you're Arab, um, you know, you feel surveillance on the one level because of, you know, your, your, your communities under the microscope, but also everyone wants to know what it is like to be, you know, queer and Arab and how difficult that might be, or how do you negotiate that? And it's very, it's increasingly difficult to sort of curate your own outness, you know, to say, I want to be known to these people, but not these people, uh, because, you know, that's what a lot of young people are doing. They have different identities in different spaces. But um, being under the microscope and having this pressure to always, uh, you know, sesume, which is not something that you can easily translate into English, but that, um, that puts them in a very difficult situation. And I feel that it causes people to choose to recloset themselves in a way. Um, and so, you know, not all of this, you know, we were talking about uh, at the at the EH, at the OSS about whether what I'm talking about here is something that these um, queer people of color talk about themselves, like if they even call themselves queer, or whether that's simply scholars from the outside who are saying these things. But I think I do notice this um, shying away from the public sphere, at least in the internet worlds that I look at. Mm. So that's it. <laughs> Um, the next conversation I will have will be with uh, for this podcast will be with Sarah Ferris who wrote okay. a book about female nationalism ah, okay. uh, so I think it's going to be a great conversation uh, uh, by uh, by juxtaposition mm -hmm. with, uh, with your own look at homo nationalism mm -hmm. and how um, uh, and you start the book with a quote from Tariq Ramadan uh, specifically mm -hmm. about how it seems Uh, we're we are we are told almost that uh, the integration of uh, Muslims in Europe is dependent on their acceptance or not of uh, of uh, homosexuality, yeah. which is frankly ironic given <laughs> the degree of homophobia we still we still see in those uh, in those. Uh, Uh, European societies. Right. Uh, so somehow we 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 see how there's a there seems to be a higher standard uh, that is uh, that is um, uh, uh, ordered mm -hmm. on on uh, uh, either Muslims or and or uh, immigrants to mm -hmm. to be um, to be accepting that as part of their part of the society. Yeah. Can, can you can you tell us about this aspect of your book because you're you're that's that's another that's another um, um, thread that yeah. goes all along throughout throughout your books that uh, I think would be fascinating yeah. to talk about. Um, I want to just add one thing yeah. that I forgot to say about clandestinity before I move on. Go for it. But I forgot to say that you know the reason why this trend towards clandestinity is very alarming to a lot of gay activists and sort of gay historians is that um, clandestinity for a very long time 
in the gay community was not a chosen thing. It was a necessity, a necessity of circumstances. Mm -hmm. And there is an impression, for instance, um, with people who, for instance, because of the possibilities of the internet, can have a secretive gay lifestyle. And there's an there's anecdotally an increase that they're kind of throwing out the accomplishments of, um, you know the gay activists of the past who really risked their lives and risked jail time and risked social stigma to um, bring about the rights and freedoms that we have today. So I try to make sure in my book that, you know, I explain that, um, you know, this reversion, or it's it's not actually a reversion, I I use the word like pro-regressions, but like um, reanimating certain forms of gay sociability that people think are a thing of the past. I say that it happens today because of modern circumstances that post-date this era of gay liberation. So, you know, I just want to say that as a disclaimer before yeah. people, like, criticize <laughs> what I have to say, and they will still criticize it. Um, but about uh, homonationalism and sexual nationalism, um, so I think, you know, Tariq Ramadan is a very, um, I think, ambivalent figure because on the one hand... I think he represents sort of European Islam, the the sort of youthful enthusiasm for crafting a European Islamic identity. He has a lot of um, fans among you know European youth and French youth. On the other hand, I think that you know he's right to um, complain about being high, held to a higher standard about um, sexual tolerance. And that the sexual tolerance of minorities and would be and, and sorry would be French people like immigrants who want to become French, um, they are held to a higher standard of sexual tolerance than the society itself. And I think you could say the same thing about um, Germany, the Netherlands, the UK, where you, you see similar debates. But I do think that um, I do take issue with um, what he says about homosexuality and its compatibility with. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, a Muslim, you know, being a good Muslim or a Muslim way of life. And I think that I go into um, a lot of the historiography of sexual difference in the Arab Islamic world and try to show that, um, yes, you know, this era of um, gay identity and public disclosure about one's identity, that is a product of, you know, um, you know, 19th and 20th century Europe. But it doesn't mean that there is not a long heritage of homoeroticism or a homosexual practice uh, documented in art and also other forms of, you know, public records. Um, and there's a lot of uh, historians who who detail that history of sexual, and I don't want to call it sexual dissidence necessarily because it's not necessarily something that uh, happened in secret or was marginal, but was present in many different facets of society. So I think there is, you know, there is all kinds of amnesia that happens, and I think sort of, you know, people like Tariq Ramadan and others who want to say that you know, Islam and homosexuality have never been compatible and it's about, you know, Western interference and uh, intellectual contagion in a way. They are also wrong, but in a different way. Um, so, and I do think, you know, like people like Tariq Ramadan are very much European phenomena. You know, the they're emerging in a kind of, there's more and more turns towards like, you know, privatization and, you know, technocratic uh, sort of tendencies and new Islamic thought and things like that, that I think that's what's interesting to me about, about Tariq Ramadan. Um, but uh, I just use him as an opening kind of to talk about like the state of the debate as it currently is in, in France and Europe, but also how, you know, Muslims are conscious of the fact that they are being tested on their, on their attitudes about sexuality not as explicitly as the citizenship tests in, um, you know, Germany or the kind of naturalization videos that you watch in the Netherlands, but 
almost in a more cultural way, at the level of cultural integration. So that's why I kind of, I don't talk about um, naturalization statistics um, in depth. I talk more about cultural integration. Um, so, so I think what's interesting about like sexual nationalism and homo nationalism is that um, it is a way to create an integration crisis where none had existed before, or maybe it had existed, but in a totally different way. So, you know, normally, you know, um, new waves of immigrants are assessed according to their linguistic skills, their cultural understandings, their uh, understandings of um, civic values and so on. And, you know, you could argue that the children of immigrants from North Africa and West Africa and, and uh, you know, basically the children of Muslim immigrants did uh, integrate on that level, but that in the 90s and 2000s, you have increasingly rhetoric in the media which seizes upon like highly violent and spectacular incidences of sexual violence and things like, you know, large families and polygamy and forced marriages and, you know, situations of families that exist um, on one side of the Mediterranean and the other and are exploiting, you know, welfare services and things like that. All of this kind of comes to a head in the 2000s and 2010s, and you see a lot of writing on these topics. And um, I think this really played a role, and I don't think we really realized how much of a role it has played in instilling unbelonging in um, these population groups and feelings of demonization. Um, so I'm kind of interested on the one hand of in how the demonization works and also reactions to being demonized. Um, and because I look at culture, you know, I have, I'm limited by the kind of documents that I can consider, but in all of the different chapters, this is kind of the dynamic, um, how demonization works and reactions to it, sexual demonization. Perhaps as a, as a short conclusion, could we talk about something that um, seems to be quite... Uh, I mean, I, I heard you talking briefly about that for a few times in the last uh, week, uh -huh. uh, which is uh, the sort of backlash that you've been receiving. Like, what mm. can, you, can you tell us maybe what in particular seems to be a difficult... Uh, Well, so to be honest, uh, in terms of public events, I haven't faced much tough questioning. Um, in terms of like articles I've written on this topic and the kind of anonymous comments you see online, I've, you know, you've been, you see things like, uh, this is like the extremist, extremes of multiculturalism or this is like, uh, you know, French bashing or something like this, or, um, you know, how, how ungrateful or things like this. And, you know, I don't think I have an ax to grind. I don't, I, like, I think the same phenomena occurs all over the world. I don't think it's, um, maybe there's a particular French side of it, which has to do with, with secularism and secularism and the, mm -hmm. the, the way that secularism and sexual liberation intersect. Maybe that's more French, but I don't think like uh, you know it's any better in the United States, for instance. I think you see the same thing starting to happen more and more. It's just a little bit more um, further along. It's more advanced, I would say, in France. Um, I've seen things like you know this is uh, you know someone who has internalized homophobia and an apologist for homophobia when really. I don't see it that way at all. I see it as there are internal conflicts in the gay community that are pitting, um, you know, where the gay community reflects the rest of society. The gay community faces problems of um, discrimination and racial division just like the rest of society does, but it's articulated in a different way. And it has to do with, with uh, outness and being mature and, uh, um, you know, being on record about your homosexuality and you get into also a lot of debates about you know male privilege too because on the one hand yeah you can say that you know uh black and arab men who are who can pass who you know use their virilism as a way to sort of um pass in the straight world um how these people are 
benefiting from a privilege that, you know, um, out or effeminate men do not benefit from. And that's true. But, um, you know, I think there are real conflicts that we haven't reckoned with between queer and gay people of color and the gay mainstream that you see in many different ways. You see it in gentrification. You see it in, um, you know, nightlife spaces where there's a lot of ethnic segregation. And uh, it happens in France and it happens in the United States. Um, there's a lot of great books around this topic, you know. Um, and I think, like, I don't see it as as homophobic because I see it as an internal dispute within the gay community. Um, and I think, like, the... The, there's another dimension to like the pushback against the kind of arguments that I'm making, which is that it is um, an infiltration of sort of American understandings of race and gender and sexuality um, that have nothing to do with lived experience in France. But what I would counter is that, um, you know, maybe that is partially true, but there are also, and I've heard this constantly from actual um, queer people of color in France that uh, they are reading these American books they're reading the scholarship and this pushback against um, kind of mainstream homosexuality, uh, homonormativity um, and they are recognizing themselves in it so I think it is part of a larger problem of minorities in France uh, looking elsewhere for answers, for tools um, and it's not just about the you know the queer community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, for for better or for worse, and probably for better for now, uh, uh, political activist in uh, in anti-racism and decolonial uh, manifestos uh, have been have been particularly looking at at the American uh, yeah. uh, American activist, and and there might be something there might be a limit to it at yeah. at, a, at a certain for point, sure. but this is all a language mm -hmm. that have been empowering people yeah. more than depowering them yeah. so far. So I think that's that's also an important thing to But even to empowering has become like almost a bad word because yeah. it's borrowed from the other context and um, it feeds into pride narratives which are communitarian. Mm. You know, so uh, I think it's a very I think it's we're in a very precarious situation in many ways. Where, you know, I am very happy on the one hand that I, I have gotten good feedback from people on the ground in France mm -hmm. about the book and, and that it illuminates certain things or it helps to understand certain things. But it also pinpoints a problem. And when you realize a sc the scope of a problem, uh, living your life can be a little more, you're a little more self-conscious about what's happening, you know? Um, so... You know, I don't see it as a kind of book that is meant to escalate or to um, exacerbate the current tensions that exist. But I think there's a lot in the book, too, that points to, you know, successful coexistence, successful uh, cohabitation and ways of understanding, you know, the interse intersection of race and uh, sexuality that, um, you know, could take us away from the sorry state of affairs of alienation or mutual suspicion and things mm -hmm. like that. So, you know, there's a chapter on literature in which I look at, you know, um, Bernard-Marie Coltès and Jean-Marie Besset and in the filmmaking chapter, André Téchiné, who have extremely, um, I don't want to say um, Utopian, but they def they definitely are aware of these problems of mutual suspicion and alienation, and they are trying to work through it. And you know, we were talking about ally politics earlier when we met at the cafe and so on. And I think, um, just as there's there are problems that can be identified um, that I identify in the book, there are also there's also a lot of interesting work on the ground that I identify to alleviate these problems. So I don't I don't think it's like throwing a bomb, you know what I mean? I think it's I think you know the first step to understanding and recovery is pinpointing the problem. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I view what I am doing. So I do have a sense of like 
you know, because oftentimes American academics are perceived as they 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 have no stakes in what they're saying in in many ways because they can just say whatever they want and there's no consequences and and so they get often accused of like throwing bombs and then leaving and then what's the result is that it's French people and minorities and the mainstream that are fighting, you know, so. Uh, that's why I think these American um, books and interventions are viewed with suspicion. But, um, you know, I do really care about what happens. And uh, maybe I'm, maybe I think my book might have more of an effect than it actually does. But I think just, I think if people read it and not just read about it or read reviews about it, they would find that it is very, very, um, it is, it is pinpointing problems for the sake of hopefully, you know, improvement in the state of affairs. Maybe I'll just finish by adding the fact that it's uh, something about French being so, and white French in particular, mm. being so uh, wary of being talked from the U.S. Yeah. is also uh, an interesting, uh, an interesting. Uh, um, there's an interesting reflection that can be made on how many times the French have been othering, othering other other societies, mm -hmm. other situation, and f when it does happen to them, somehow they don't they don't <laughs> they don't like them so much. So much. Yeah. Well, French, you know, are very interesting anthropological subjects. You, know? <laughs> you can have fetish objects yeah. just like you can in you know primitive societies in in quotations. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Well, Mohamed, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Sure. And uh, I was uh, very much looking forward to to do that. And, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I cannot recommend enough uh, uh, people reading Sexagon and maybe uh, uh, finding potential uh, tr translation. I hope so, yeah. yeah we'll I'll see. tell you after the interview Perfect. about that story. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> thank you, Mohamed. Thank you.